Welcome to this week's edition of Bowl Season Stories. I'm Nick Carparelli, the Executive Director of Bowl Season. And each week, different guests from the world of college football join me to talk about current topics in the sport, as well as discuss what they remember most about their bowl game experiences. Today, we are joined by former Colorado Buffalo and current Fox college football analyst, Joel Klatt, and Bahamas Bowl Executive Director, Richard Giannini. Today's show is brought to you by Tappet, the official cashless payment partner of bowl season. And also joining me as she does each week is our on-air producer, Angela Lang. Angela, I say that, however, you were, uh, were not with us last week. You weren't feeling well. Somehow we uh, survived the show without you, but it's good to have you back. It's great to be back. And you not only survived, but you thrived. It was a really great show last week um, with some really amazing guests. So I encourage everybody to go back and listen if you haven't heard it already. And a really great show on tap today. I am so excited about our first guest. I want to get right into him. Uh, currently the lead college football analyst at Fox Sports who made his mark on the field as a record-setting quarterback as a Colorado Buffalo, but uh, not to mention he is also a, a former pro in two professional sports football and baseball. Joel Klatt, so great to have you on the show. It's good to be here. Um, thank you for having me. I just want to know, Angela, I know that obviously you've got a great job and, and are, are terrific at your job, but how do we get titles like Nick has? Like, I want to be executive director of dessert or something like that. Just executive director of bowl season, right? Like bowl season is like Christmas for a college football fan. And he's just becomes executor, executive director of it. I love it. It's like it's, the greatest title in sports. And not only is it the greatest title, I think I have the greatest job in all of sports. I honestly do, Joel. So thanks for recognizing that. I'm not giving it up anytime soon, though. So don't. <laughs> Don't have your uh, heart set on it. You got it. Well, uh, we're entering week 11 of the season. Hard to believe that. We only have two weeks of the regular season left, conference championships games. Then we head into bowl season. You work the biggest college football game on Fox each week. Tell us about some of those games you've worked this year. We, do, we watch them on TV, but there's nothing like being at the game in person. Describe the atmosphere for us, especially this year coming off a difficult 2020 season. Yeah, I mean, you you... you touched on it right there in the, the back half of your your question this year has been so much different and so much more joyful you know it was always a cause for celebration to come together I've always felt like college football is is a little bit like the Thanksgiving dinner for the alumni base it's like the time for the alumni base to get back together and it's like a, a large family uh you and all the fans of of the the program that you love and the place that you went to school so you know, for me, it's always been a joyous occasion to to be at games, but this year it's just been different for obvious reasons. Um, and we we've seen a couple of things that I will never ever forget. Um, the the first being we were at the first game back in Camp Randall, the first Saturday of the college football season, Penn State Wisconsin. It turns out it's a great game, close late. And we, our, our production crew on the game made a, a, an amazing decision and decided to stay during a commercial break and cover jump around, um, kind of that more modern tradition. And, and the jump around, you know, House of Pain comes on, jump around starts playing, and the place went bananas. And it was like a release and, and, a, and a joy that, that swept over that stadium. I'll always remember that. That was a, not only a great game, but just a, a, a great individual um, kind of moment. Then there's two other moments. One is we did Iowa Penn State 
and just being a part of the Iowa wave at the end of the first quarter, waving to the children's hospital. That's something I'll never forget. And to be able to be back in the stadium and do that. And then the Michigan, Michigan state game was just an all time great game. And we called that one a couple of weeks ago, what, nine days ago. And even though the college football playoff ranking committee doesn't believe that Michigan lost that game, trust me, they lost that game. I was there. I saw the scoreboard. <laughs> it was an unbelievable game. And um, th that's, that's one of those rivalries and atmospheres that, that I think is, is, is really unrivaled. And it certainly was that day. Well, obviously a lot more uh, big games to come this season, big moments. You're working the Oklahoma Baylor game this weekend. Is that correct? That's right. OU uh, and then OU Iowa state next week. And then I'll have Michigan, Michigan, uh, I'm sorry, Michigan, Ohio state, the final week. Right. Right. So yeah, obviously big games, games that factor into the uh, national championship picture. A lot of other teams in the mix this year, you, you know, people talking about Cincinnati and there's, there's six or seven teams, you know, I'd say other than Georgia at this point that, that people are debating whether should be, there should be in there or not. When you look at the parity of college football right now, uh, it really looks like many different teams than we're used to can seize the opportunity and play in a big bowl game or obviously the CFP. What are the, some of the things you're expecting to see and are, are looking forward to seeing down the home stretch? Well, you're, you're right. I think that there's external factors because I don't believe our sport is built for parity. And I think it's actually one of the biggest issues in college football is, is the structure of our sport and, and the burden of proof falling on the little guy and not the big guy in the room to prove their worth. But this year is different. And you're correct in your assessment of what we have this year with more people vying for spots at the table. I think that there is a very clear and specific reason for that, and that is COVID. Um, the eligibility rules that, that COVID ushered in means that there's more programs that traditionally, traditionally rely on developing players that now have fifth and sixth year players in their program. So what you have is a lot of these programs like Michigan State, even though they've done it through, through transfer, or Oklahoma State, you've seen Minnesota play, play better, uh, Wisconsin play better, you see all, any number that was Cincinnati is this way. And you see guys that are 22 and 23 years old. And the difference is, is at the top end of college football, they don't have those super seniors or COVID seniors because generally the talent on those programs, the, the Alabamas and the Clemsons of the world and the Ohio States of the world, they're gone, their guys are gone after three years anyways, because they go to the national football league. So you have the traditional powers in, in the sport this year that are playing with 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. And then the teams that rely on development, they're playing with 21, 22, and 23-year-olds. And, and I think that's what has evened out the playing field. And I think it's going to be an amazing November and seeing how this all plays out because there is um, more teams. There are more teams this year that have, I would say, at least a path to one of the four seats than we've had in previous years. I think you can make a case for teams like A&M, Wake Forest. You can make a case for Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, Cincinnati, Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State. I mean, you go down the list, and this is not even the teams that are sitting there right now, like the Georgias and Alabamas and Oregons and Cincinnatis of the world. So it's, it's going to be fun. There's no doubt. I think that this could be one of the most interesting Novembers that we've had in a long time. Yeah, I would agree with you. You know, I think that's that's been one of the knocks on the CFP in its first uh, six, seven years in existence is that the same teams have been involved every year. So I think this is uh, definitely good for the sport. 
you touched on this a little bit. Uh, you have some pretty strong opinions about the state of college football as well as the CFP selection process. Please share some more of those thoughts and ways you think the sport can be made better. Well, um, our, our sport, if you, man, it's such a loaded question, Nick. And one of the biggest issues with college football is that no one looks after the whole. Uh, everybody looks after their silo and that's, they've been incentivized to do so. So conference commissioners do things in their own best interest and their conference's best interest, which they should. That's what they're hired to do. So I'm not, I want to preface this by saying, I'm not knocking anybody individually. This is just the structure of the sport. Um, individual presidents are looking out for their own best interests, uh, like Oklahoma and Texas. And they're looking at the handwriting on the wall for revenue and so, and so on and so forth. So they want to move conferences. Well, that conference, let's say the SEC, they're looking for their own best interest. Is Oklahoma and Texas moving to the SEC better for the sport overall? Probably not. But it is, is it in their own best interest? Probably. Um, so I, I think that, and that happens everywhere. Again, this is not a specific knock. Everyone acts in their own best interest. I think it happens, listen, and I'm sure you, you won't love my opinion on this, but it happens in, in, in the bowl industry as well. Um, they they want to maintain this structure that maybe doesn't fit with where it's headed or it, you know, there's, everybody's not in alignment pulling in the same direction. So the first and foremost, I think that we need a governing body and I'm not talking about the NCAA and I'm not talking about eligibility rules and so on and so forth. I'm talking about the structure of the sport. How do we build non-conference schedules? How do we uh, maintain some playing field, even playing field when it relates to how you play your own conference? We should not have the SEC playing eight conference games and other conferences playing nine conference games. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying they shouldn't be different. So the fragmented nature of the way that college football operates right now and, and the people in college football operating in their own best interest, which they should because that's what they're incentivized to do, is ultimately the downfall of the sport because no one's looking after the whole. Here's my analogy, and it might be a poor analogy, but this is my analogy. College football is right now what the United States was before the Constitutional Convention. They were 13 territories, essentially, or, or states, if you will, that all operated in their own best interests. So some were adhering to international law when it came to trade and so on and so forth, and some weren't. And they didn't have any incentive to do anything different until they all got an umbrella over them at the Constitutional Convention and we made uh, kind of a, a federal government. And there was a bunch of opinions in the room in Philadelphia and they hammered it out and created a system. We need to do the same. People need to understand that Greg Sankey, as powerful as he is, needs to give up some things in order to make the sport better. And the Pac-12 and the ACC, so, you know, um, th those guys, they need to understand that they're not going to get everything they want. And the Big Ten the same way. But if we all come together and we try to form an entity that is better for the whole, then we can grow revenue, we can grow player opportunities, we can grow the postseason, we can have a better non-conference, and we can maintain the revenue structure, which will allow for athletes across the sports spectrum to have their opportunities moving forward. We're, we're, we're too close to the point where football revenue won't cover all the other sports for some of these schools unless we grow revenue. So there was a lot in there. 
I know. <laughs> there was, uh, you said it at the beginning, Joel, there's, it's probably a lot of things you said that there are people, uh, there are people out there won't like, but it, it, it would be hard to, it'd be hard to argue against what you're saying. It really would. Um, I personally think think you made a lot of sense. I, you know, you you also had some positive things to say about Nebraska giving their head coach Scott Frost in a, another year. Tell us what you think about the about that, but then about the growing trend of of firing coaches after very short stints at their school. So um, the short stint firing is, I think, an admission from an administrator that the decision was wrong in the first place. Uh, without saying it, you're basically saying I failed. This person shouldn't have been there in the first place, and we need to make a move. Uh, the one thing that I think is um, underhanded about the the short term coach, uh, and I'm meaning like you're firing them within within 20 21 months. You know, we're talking about like that, like Matt Wells at Texas Tech, or is that you, you seem to have people within the programs that are trying to dig up dirt in order to not pay the large buyouts that would be attached to a coach that only coached for 15, 16, 17 months. I think that you're seeing that at Washington right now, Nick, um, with what they're doing with Jimmy Lake and the quote unquote suspension this week for an incident that they themselves internally investigated and said that there was no malintent or, or, you know, wasn't a villainous act. And yet they still suspended him in a, for a game. And it's because there's language in his contract that would suggest that that sus suspension could merit conduct unbecoming in particular when it relates to player safety and they would get out of a buyout if they wanted to make a change. I don't like that. Right. It seems like, underhanded if you will or or i don't even know if that's the right term um and then there's another aspect of the coaches and and what we see right now and and mid-season firings and mid-season firings are an unintended consequence to the early signing period and administrators feel like they need to get a jump on the early signing period by signaling to recruits or potential candidates for jobs that this job is open I'd like to start negotiating. This is a place that, that is going to change moving forward versus waiting until the end of the season and then basically having, you know, five to 10 days before the early signing period. So an unintended consequence. And I feel like the people that bear the brunt of that are the players in the program because they committed to this person. They're playing for that person. That's what the structure is. And then all of a sudden, the structure of the play uh, of the place or program is kind of thrown into chaos uh, in the middle of the year. Um, and hopefully there's strong leadership in those locker rooms to take them the rest of the way. Joel, thank you for uh, answering those questions. I, um, you know, you've become a real thought leader in college football. I personally respect your opinion. So I wanted to at least give you the opportunity to, to talk about those a little bit before. We I don't know, man. I'm saying, I get a lot of like cross looking looks from, especially from administrators. When I start talking about some of this stuff, they're like, wait, what? Well, that's all right. We, we, we all need some balance in these conversations, no matter what the topic is, I think, but let's, let's shift gears a little bit. You, you played quarterback at Colorado from mm -hmm. 2002 to 2005. You're considered to be one of the most productive players to have ever played for the Buffaloes. Uh, now, what does that mean? I read that. I'm like, well, so you dive into the stats, you, you, you started out as a preferred walk-on, which I have a, a lot of respect for. I mean, nothing was given to you. You had to earn your position. Uh, but when it was all said and done, you set 44 school records, finished your career as the school's all-time leader in passing yards, touchdowns, completion percentage, completions. Uh, but those are just the stats, as I mentioned. 
uh, so much more goes into a college football playing career, right? It's a really special thing. It's obviously something you really wanted very badly to be able to go as a walk-on and have to have to earn your spot. Uh, so much time spent with your teammates and the camaraderie and the lifelong memories you have. What do you remember most about your college career? Um, a few things stand out. Um, one is, is when I, I ended up leaving baseball, I was a minor league baseball player for three seasons and just, I could see the handwriting on the wall. It wasn't going to work out for me. I wasn't succeeding personally, um, nor athletically. Right. So in the sport or, or as a person, and I knew I, I needed to change. Um, and so when I went back to Colorado, it was to go to school first and, then I thought, well, I've got eligibility. I might as well just walk on. And the backstory to this is that my dad was a high school football coach and we grew up, I grew up about 20 minutes south of Boulder. And they used to give high school football coaches free tickets back when CU wasn't very good in the mid eighties before Bill, Bill McCartney got them kind of rolling and before they won a national championship and they would give them in the North stands. And so my dad got free tickets in the mid eighties to go see an Oklahoma game with Barry Switzer. And um, I think Jamel Holloway was the quarterback, but Brian Bosworth, I remember vividly, he was the linebacker for OU. And I sat there and I watched that Buffalo run across that field and the, and the gold helmets of the buffs come out, this team that I'd watched on TV and loved so much. And I was young. I think I was only six or seven years old. And, and then I saw Oklahoma and I fell in love with college football, and the Buffs that day. And from then on, I was just a diehard Buffs fan and, and would go up to games. I was at the Nebraska uh, CU game 62 to 36 in 2001. I was, I was deeply unhappy in life and failing at baseball. And I was complaining to my best friend. We're sitting in the stands. And, and, and I was talking about like, look how much fun this looks like to go out there. I should have played football and I shouldn't have played baseball and this or that. And my best friend, God bless him, looked at me and was like, hey, stop complaining and do it. And I was like, well, that's interesting. So I walked on at Colorado the next year and my whole motivation was just to run out behind the Buffalo, you know, and to be one of those players uh, running out in front of the seven-year-old who's in the North stands with his dad, you know, rooting, rooting for the buffs. And I can remember the first time I ever ran out, I wasn't starting. My dad cried that day because it was like his son was playing for, for Colorado. Once I got there, Nick, I realized like, oh, wait, the, the lessons I learned playing baseball, the major, maturity I gained during that time was going to allow me to have some success. And I started to realize that like, hey, football is not necessarily a minimum skill sport as much as it is a minimum effort and knowledge sport. And as long as I'm willing to pay the price physically and pay the price mentally, learning the system and operating the system, there's a chance I could get on the field. And so from that moment, when I realized that I was like, I'm not going to allow a chance to go by. I already failed. I was drafted in the 11th round. I had a great opportunity to play professional baseball, and I let it slip through my fingers. And that failure made me much more motivated and focused when I had my next opportunity in college football, and I was not going to let it go. Nothing like a lifelong friend to give you a little slap in the face and say, stop talking about it. Just do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I love that. We all need those friends. Well, you know, the title of this podcast is bowl season stories. So we're going to talk about bowl games a little bit. You, uh, when you were with the Buffaloes, you went to three bowl games, 2002 Alamo bowl, 2004 Houston bowl, 2005 champ sports bowl, which you did not play in. 
But that 2004 Houston Bowl, uh, you guys beat UTEP, a game in which you had a a big fourth quarter. Uh, You you led the Buffs back from a 28-19 deficit. You had a 78-yard touchdown pass to your tight end, 39-yard touchdown strike. What do you remember about that game, especially the comeback? Uh, It was as frustrating a game as you can possibly imagine through the first three quarters. And there was a lot of arguments on the sideline about me wanting to throw the ball more and us running the football. And, and I thought that we were too conservative early. That's what I remember from that game. And then lo and behold, we came out and just like, we, we made some big plays uh, there in the fourth quarter. I also remember on the long touchdown pass to the tight end, Joe Cox seemed like you remember, I think you said 78 yards. It was a long touchdown pass. I honestly, I got hit uh, as hard as I have gotten hit throughout my entire career on that touchdown pass. And it's one of those things where when it's caught and it goes down the field, nobody realizes that you're back there. And I was on my back, almost knocked out uh, because we had, we had whiffed on a defensive tackle and he came to hit me and hit me like right under the chin, right as I was letting go of the ball. And there was one offensive lineman that was back there with me. And and he was like, Hey man, I'm really sorry, but we got to get off the field. We just scored. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's, uh, Let's talk about the bowl game experience in general. You know, most people turn the TV on for, for three hours in December and watch what they think is another game. But you, you and your teammates are in town for four or five days. Uh, like I said, you're with your, your teammates. They're your friends. It's a reward for a successful season. You're, you're doing unique things in a unique uh, environment that you don't normally hang out in. Pull back the curtain for us a little bit. Do you have any personal bowl stories that maybe no one knows about that made that experience even more memorable for you? Well, of course. I, I, you know, in fact, almost, unless you're talking about like giant bowl game, like a Rose Bowl or something that, that means something on the national stage. If you talk with players who went to bowl games, they will talk more about bowl week than they will bowl the bowl game. Uh, at least that's my experience. Uh, and it's because of what you were talking about. You know, you go in for, you know, five days, you guys all, you stay in a hotel. There's usually a, a conference room in the hotel that is kind of like the uh, player's lounge. And there's a video game set up and arcade games and there's snacks. And guys just sit in there and just hang out all week. And you have to understand that a football team is about as eclectic as you can get from a background perspective and diverse as you can get. Uh, from a background perspective. And, and while you are around these guys your entire season in the locker room and in the team room, the bowl week is when you really like live together as a team. You know, you've got your roommates back at home, but now in the bowl season, I actually remember that that was the, the week that I, I felt like I got to know more of my teammates at a deeper level because we would just sit in that lounge all week long uh, have snacks, watch film, play arcade, play video games. And so those are the, those are the weeks that I think I remember the most just because the brotherhood and the bond went past football and it went past the locker room and we just hung out and we lived together for the week. You've covered bowl games as well in your career as a broadcaster. Do you, you have any favorite games that stand out for you there? So I've done the holiday bowl a few times and I've done, I did the foster farms bowl up in San Francisco. Um, there's one memory that is just an absolute error on my part, but I, 
Iowa won the Holiday Bowl a couple of years ago with just a great performance. And I just remember being on stage with them, giving them the trophy and how happy they were at the end of that. That's, that's a memory that'll stick with me. But the Foster Farms Bowl, Nick, you know how important the title sponsor is to these games, right? I mean, they oh, yeah. like the lifeblood of bowl season. And I don't remember her name. I'm going to... I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember her name, but the CEO of Foster Farms was a very smart and very nice woman. And, you know, I, I had been with her and the bowl team a couple of different times through the week. You know, we'd done the pep rally, we do the big conference room and bowl, you know, uh, with both teams and, and I would introduce her and everything. And and so then we we call the game and Utah ends up winning the game. And I raced down to do the trophy presentation. To do the trophy presentation, I was supposed to introduce her. And it's chaotic on those trophy stands. And then you, they link you in to the PA system. So you hear yourself in real time through your IFB and your microphone. And then you get this echo from like the speakers in the stadium. So the stadium's hearing me. Everyone at home is hearing me. And I flubbed. I said, and now to present the trophy, and I said, Mr., and I called her Mr., and then her name, and didn't think anything of it, and I was just like, yeah, and she walked up, and she kind of like looked at me weird, and I was like, why'd she look at me weird? What, what's going on? <laughs> and I walk off the stage, you know, and afterwards, and I'm kind of like, man, that was, it was a good game, and, and then we got the trophy presentation done and everything, and I was like, and I looked at her, and I was, because I knew she was nervous about speaking to the whole, you know, television audience and stadium, and I was like, great job. And she was like, you called me Mr. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, you definitely misheard that. I definitely did not call you Mr. And I looked at my on-field producer and he's looking at me and he closes his eyes and he just nods. And I was like, no. So I'm sure that's not the story you expected uh, from calling a bowl game, but that, that was a story. Um, and Ryan, you know, Ryan, who, who works up there and it became like the red box and, and yes. uh, Ryan Opel, he's, he's the one that's like working to secure the sponsor and they were working to secure the foster farms for, you know, future years. And he's looking at me like, do you know how difficult you just made my job? <laughs> well, I'm sure you made it up to him since somehow, you know, sent her a little note or something like that, but uh, those things happen. Uh, last question for you. Got to ask you this. What's it like calling a game with Gus Johnson? Is it just, I mean, can, can you run out of, can a guy run out of energy? I mean, uh, no. And, and it's amazing because Gus is one of the rare uh, broadcasters in our industry that can, uh, whatever he is attached to, he makes feel bigger and more important and better. And so I'm very cognizant to try not to get too excited um, because if both of us are too excited, I feel like that would just, you know, it's just like, we would just implode. So I, I try to be the, the yin to his yang as much as I possibly can and deliver all the information of the why and what the viewer needs to be thinking about or, or, or viewing, uh, as far as a situation or a philosophy or a play call or so on and so forth. And then allow that his call to really like take over. And I love I love working with Gus. Like I said, there's there's only two things that someone in my seat really wants from a play-by-play -play person, and that is like let me talk about the football and then make the same game sound bigger. And he does that. He's phenomenal. He's very smart, and uh, I love working with him.
Well, Joe, thanks so much for being on the show. You usually this time of year we we start looking forward to seeing each other at uh, Jordan Bazant's dinner at Campanola's that's in New right. York before that's the Football right. Foundation dinner, but that dinner's out in L.A. this year. So, uh, I guess that's a, a lingering sign that COVID is not over. That the Football Foundation's in Las Vegas, but uh, hopefully that'll be back in New York next year. Well, I can't wait to see you whenever that is, and uh, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Joel. We're going to take a short break and be right back with Bahamas Bowl Executive Director Richard Giannini. Stay with us. The first goal of every college football team at the beginning of the season is to win six games and qualify for a bowl game. They've punched their ticket and now are officially bowl bound. We're very excited to announce a new tradition with official bowl season gear given out in the locker room moments after winning that sixth game. T-shirts that celebrate the achievement. Fans can join the celebration by going online to bowlseason.com where they can order their own bowl bound t-shirt. Bowl season is a celebration of college football. So celebrate with your team when they become bowl eligible. Bowl season stories rolls on with executive director of the Bahamas Bowl, Richard Giannini. Richard, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Hey, Richard. How are you? I'm doing great, Nick. Hope you're well. I'm, I'm great. Yeah, always good talking to you. You were you were named executive director of the Bahamas Bowl in June 2015, which which really isn't that long ago, especially when you consider that in total you've enjoyed a 50-year career in sports. Now I've known you a long time, but until I was preparing for today, I didn't realize it was that long. And I just want to highlight a few of them. You, you you graduated from the University of Florida. You worked there in the athletic department. Uh, you worked in the athletic de- department at Duke. You served as the athletic director at uh, Southern Miss for 13 years. You worked for the NCA. You served on several NCA committees. You were involved in creating several new bowl games uh, well before the Bahamas Bowl. Uh, but, but there's more, but what, what a career, Richard. As you look back at those 50 years, what are some of the things you remember most? Uh, and to what do you attribute your success over that time? Well, Nick, I've really been blessed. Uh, you know, when you mentioned over 50 years, we need to stop with that. Uh, <laughs> that uh, it gives you a hint on, on what my age is, but, uh, you know, it all started at the University of Florida, and uh, my uh, first year uh, after I graduated uh, was the year that Steve Spurrier won the Heisman Trophy, and uh, I was fortunate enough to, uh, to be named uh, uh, the assistant SID at that point in time, and uh, it was great to graduate from college and then move right into a position with the Gators, and uh, that first year, uh, uh, as I said, he won the Heisman Trophy and uh, the Gators went to the Sugar Bowl. And I've been fortunate over the years, uh, this coming Bahamas Bowl will be the 28th bowl game that I've been associated with as a staff member or uh, being executive director of a bowl. And uh, I've seen a lot seen a lot of bowl games in my career. And uh, starting back in 66, I had an opportunity to uh, pretty well know the history of, uh, of bowls and uh, uh, football has been my first love my entire career. And uh, it's really great to be able to, uh, to kind of on the downside of my career, the, I'm really past fourth quarter. I'm in overtime, but uh, <laughs> it's great to be working for the bowls and I uh, appreciate the job that you're doing and the promotion of the game and then all the bowls and uh, your efforts on behalf of all the bowls has been great, Nick. Well, thank you, Richard. There, there's 43 bowl games this year, and the Bahamas Bowl will literally kick off bowl season, as this is the first game on December 17th. 
uh, after missing the 2020 game due to COVID, how excited are you to get the Bahamas Bowl back for the teams and the fans? Well, we're, we're really excited, and we're, we're, we're really excited for the island of the Bahamas. Uh, the Bahamas is an outstanding location, as you know, and, and uh, the beaches and the waters down there are as great as any place in the world. And uh, we're fortunate to have the Atlantis that, to host the teams, and it's one of the world's finest resorts uh, uh, in the in, in in the world too, and uh, so I, I know the Bahamians are happy to get us back because they've been really shut down as America was shut down with COVID. Uh, you can imagine uh, uh, an island in in uh, Nassau and uh, the Bahamas that uh, ninety percent of their uh, country and their economy is based on tourism, and uh, it was cut off at the knees. And so they're really happy to get us back, and and we're thrilled. Uh, uh, you know, as I said, it's a great place to host an event, and uh, we're just uh, can't wait to get down there and enjoy some of that sun uh, sunshine, warm weather, and everything that the islands give to you. The, the Bahamas Bowl is the first bowl game played outside the United States or Canada since 1937. Uh, you mentioned what a special uh, trip it is for for the fans and and. Uh, but I would imagine with that comes a lot of challenges, uh, having a bowl game uh, off the coast. Well, talk, tell us about some of the challenges you've had since launching the bowl. Well, it is a challenge and, and we kind of take pride. We're now the longest standing uh, international bowl game in the history of the bowls uh, that they date back to you know, the early 1930s. And so we're, we're proud of that. And with it has come a lot of challenges. We've been fortunate to, uh, have uh, great support down there. And uh, uh, when we, uh, I, I was actually involved in, in starting the game along with uh, uh, Britton Banowski, who then was the commissioner of Conference USA and Lee Miller, who uh, does the Battle for Atlantis basketball tournament down there every year. She started that uh, event in uh, 2010. So she kind of helped us open the doors and uh, you know, it's it's been uh, it's been an interesting challenge uh, because of uh, uh, just the government. We've had two different governments in power since we've been down there, and of course, as you know, in any government, when you change, uh, uh, when one uh, group comes in and the other group goes out, uh, there's a lot of learning curve that you got to do, and learning individuals and and getting to know people, and uh, so uh, you know that's been a challenge, and of course. Uh, uh, you know, just the distance. Uh, uh, the, the good thing about the Bahamas is it's, it's close to the United States and it's, it's you know, uh, uh, our headquarters, ESPN Events is headquartered in Charlotte. And, you know, there are a lot of direct flights from Charlotte to Nassau. And it's like, you know, flying direct from Charlotte to Fort Lauderdale, Miami or, or Nassau. They're all about the same distance. So it is close. And uh, although the Hawaii Bowl is in, in, uh, in the mix, uh, uh, that's quite a distance from, uh, you know, the West Coast out to Hawaii, but fortunately ours is so close to uh, the United States. But, uh, but it, it is a challenge for fans to get there. It's not like, uh, you know, I tell people, if you go to a domestic bowl and you say, well, we're not going to go to the game, and then about two days before the bowl, one of your buddies says, hey, come on, get in the car and let's go down there. Boom, you can jump in the car and make a four or five hour trip or whatever it is, but you just can't do that going to the Bahamas. So, uh, you know, that, that's a challenge to us. And then, uh, you know, the, the Bahamas is a great country and great people and a great place to go. But 
uh, most of the people down there on island time. So we got to get them adjusted to uh, the timing that we're on to do a bowl game. And, and, and that's been an interesting uh, situation. But uh, we've got an outstanding stadium. The stadium was actually built by the Chinese and presented to uh, uh, to the Bahamians and opened in 2012. So uh, it, it's it's an outstanding stadium to watch a football game. Uh, every seat in the in the stadium is chair back seating. And uh, we do have a little uh, challenges with the dressing rooms because it was originally built for track and field and for soccer. So you can imagine for soccer, there are a lot of little dressing rooms and we've got to convert, try to convert that into big dressing rooms. But those are some of the challenges that we face, but uh, they're good challenges to have. What kind of reactions do you see from the teams and the fans every year? I imagine the opportunity to participate in a bowl game in a unique destination like the Bahamas is pretty exciting for them. Well, it really is. And, and you know, one of the things that uh, we've had, we have the MAC, uh, MAC and Conference USA are the teams. And of course, the MAC team comes from uh, uh, the northern part of this country. And uh, the first year we had Central Michigan and uh, they, the players didn't know until they, they got into the uh, the coach assembled him on the Sunday that we announced it. And uh, they're all sitting in there and, and he kind of went through a litany. Well, here are the opportunities that we have. And, you know, he mentioned that they put up a graphic from uh, these other bowl games. And then finally they put up a graphic of the Atlantis and the Bahamas and, and, the, and the beaches. And, uh, and, then, and he said, you know, this is where we're going. And I mean, the team went crazy. They really did. And, uh, you know, the great thing about that kind of destination, it, it's like uh, the Hawaii Bowl. And uh, my last year at Southern Miss, uh, we won Conference uh, USA Championship and, and went to Hawaii. And, uh, you know, that's, those are trips that the players will never forget. And uh, I just this past weekend went to a reunion of the Southern Miss football team for that trip. And, uh, and Larry Fedora, who was the head coach at that point in time, he said, uh, well, what did you guys think about the Hawaii Bowl? And, of course, they really, you know, tremendous cheer. And he said, how many have you ever been back to the Hawaii Bowl since? And not one player in that room, you know, raised their hand. And and you know that's the that's the great thing that they they'll they'll they, you know there may be a couple get an opportunity to go back to Hawaii, but uh, ninety nine percent of those players will never have that experience again. And and although the Bahamas is a little closer to the United States and a little bit easier to get to, most of those student athletes will never have that experience. And so. You know, we, we think it's a once in a lifetime uh, situation and, and that's why we're, we're proud of our bowl. And then we like the uh, last couple of years, we've been the first game to kind of kick off bowl season. And we, we like that because I think that uh, that kind of sets the stages for the, all the other bowls. And uh, uh, it's a great position for us to be in. And, uh, and you know, we are, you know, we kind of promote ourselves. Our bowls are better in the Bahamas because, you know, it kind of rhymes and goes together, but it really is. And I've had a lot of the, a lot of the ADs that have left years later have said, well, I've gone to this bowl game or I've gone to this bowl game. Some of them have moved up to the group, uh, up to the power five or power five ADs. And they say, still the greatest memory we have is being in the Bahamas and Nassau and the experience we had there. So uh, we're, we're thrilled with the opportunity that we can give and, and, and give that experience to the student athletes and coaches and staff. Well, we talk about that a lot on the show, Richard, the, the, the experience that the student athletes have, and it's more than just the three hours of the game. You know, you were 
you were uh, at 13 years at Southern Miss, you went to 12 bowl games, uh, you know, and, and, and we know how important bowl season is to universities like Southern Miss and others around the country. Uh, do you have any memorable bowl trips from, from your teams at Southern Miss that stood out amongst the others? Well, you know, it, uh, I mean, everyone, you know, was different. And I think over the 28 bowl experiences that I've had, uh, you know, 16 or 17 of those bowl, you know, the same uh, have been different venues. But uh, when I was at Southern Miss, we went to uh, New Orleans Bowl, probably four, four of those 12 trips were to New Orleans. And, and uh, our fans and uh, players love New Orleans. I mean, it's close to Hattiesburg. It's about a 90 mile drive. And they just love the opportunity to be in the, the Crescent City and enjoy that experience. And you know, we stayed at the same hotel at the SEC. You know, they had to deal with the Sugar Bowl that their champion always goes there. And, and uh, you know, we would stay in the same hotel that uh, the Alabamas of the world stayed. And, you know, it was really first class. But, you know, every one of them, they're different. But there's, you know, something positive about every, every bowl experience. And, uh, you know, I can go back to Florida, whether it was the Gator Bowl or in Orlando, the Citrus Bowl or, you know, wherever, wherever we went, uh, we went to the Houston Bowl, uh, the old Blue Bonnet Bowl. So, you know, they're all great experiences. And, and I think it's, uh, it's one thing that uh, it's really, it's a great, great thing for the fans and the student athletes, because as you know, in this day and age, when they're playing 12 games a year and the life of a student athlete is really difficult. I don't care what sports you're playing in. But when you've got to balance uh, your uh, practice, you got to balance the games, you have to balance uh, going to class, and then you put all that together, you know, starting the 1st of August, it, it's really a grind. And it is such a reward for them to, uh, to have at the end of the season to go experience a different uh, uh, bowl game atmosphere. And I think if you talk to any bowl director that uh, they'll tell you that. And uh, uh, so it's, you know, not, uh, they all come together and, uh, you know, we went to the Liberty Bowl a couple of times, which uh, with Conference USA at one point, the champion went to the Liberty Bowl and uh, that was always a great experience. Uh, they, they, they always do a great job there in, uh, in Memphis and uh, we, we really enjoyed uh, those opportunities. But uh, all in all, as I said, uh, I got just, I've been blessed with tremendous memories and I'm glad that um, I'm ending up with, uh, you know, what I call the the pinnacle of them is, is being able to go down to the Bahamas every year. <laughs> well, the Bahamas Bowl is scheduled for Friday, December 17th at 12 p.m. Eastern time in Nassau's Thomas A. Robinson National Stadium. The game will be broadcast on ESPN. Richard, thanks so much for being on the show. I have so much respect for you and your long career. Uh, really appreciate your time. Good luck this bowl season. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Good luck to you and all the bowl directors out there and the fans that attend the games. And thanks to all of you for listening to this week's Bowl Season Stories podcast. Please join us next week when we will welcome another lineup of great guests. If you like the show, we'd appreciate you dropping a five-star rating for the podcast. And as always, you can follow all the podcast and Bowl Season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl season. Thanks for listening.